We're going to, we pretty much went through our whole passage this morning, but I wanted to kind of take a little bit of a topical route on sin based on the last two verses in Matthew 5, 27 through 30, I believe is what it was. Not not necessarily look at these two verses, 29 and 30, in the context of lust, but really just in the context of sin in general. Because Jesus uses this, He uses this talk um, even in other spots of Matthew uh, towards sin in general. And so I wanted to spend some time considering what it reveals to us, and I mentioned it a little bit this morning, about what this reveals to us about sin. Basically, here, if I had to say one thing, one sentence, we must not underestimate sin. We cannot underestimate it. It is dangerous to underestimate sin in many, many ways. Now, if you think about the Bible, if you think about the Bible, it begins with sin entering in the world. That's how the Bible begins, after creation. And then you see after this in the Old Testament, God giving law and calling obedience to the law in order to do what? To fight against that sin. And then in the middle of the Bible, sort of in the middle of the story, you could say, God taking further action to do what? To save His people from their sins. So this is a theme that starts in Genesis makes its way all the way to the New Testament in Matthew, as we saw earlier this year. But then how does it end? How does Scripture end? How does the story end? But that God establishes His eternal kingdom with no sin. So we can see, I don't want to say the importance of sin, but we can see the heavy theme of sin in God's Word. It begins in Genesis and the goal of God is to cleanse this sin throughout Scripture and that is how the story ultimately will end. It will end with an eternal kingdom where, and I'm quoting Revelation, where nothing unclean can ever enter but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Now, this kind of goes back to what we spoke of this morning. If nothing unclean can ever enter this eternal kingdom, then we're out of luck. But, this is the work of Christ. To bring the unclean into a kingdom where only clean, pure, hearts and souls can enter. And that is based on the covered righteous blood of Christ. Right? We gotta we gotta always remember 
that our entrance into the kingdom isn't because we are clean. It's because we're covered with the blood of Christ that is clean. This is what makes us qualified for a kingdom that does not have any spot or blemish before a God who is fully good and fully righteous. And yet, you look in Scripture, the epistles in the New Testament, what are they filled with but commands to battle against our sin? Like, you can't deny it. You can't get away from it. Constantly reminded of the sin that we've been saved from, like we looked at this morning in 1 Corinthians 6. For such were some of you. But as you, but we have to be careful as we talk about sin that our obsession isn't on sin. Like we're not, we're not cowering from sin because we're obsessed with it and afraid of it. But it's really our view of God that creates and establishes our outlook on sin. Right? So if we. If we are a church who come together and all we're doing is trying to talk about sin and how we don't want to do it and how we want to be this way and we want to be that way, we're going to be a church full of rule keepers. We're going to be a bunch of legalists who said, I did it this way. I didn't do these sins. It would sound a lot like a Pharisee. But on the other hand, if we're a church that is always about grace and we never are concerned with sin, then we become what is known as, it's a, the, the word is antinomious, which just means people of lawlessness. We say, look at the grace of God, but I'm going to act however I want. So there is the balance of understanding the grace of God that covers our sin, but yet we, being covered, as we've said multiple times, are then ready to put away sin. But if we are a church that goes one way or the other in those two ways, we'll see, we might gather together, but we'll cease to be a church. Like, in the eyes of the Lord, our lampstand will be put away be shut off right and that would not only collectively would we cease to be a church if this if if we went one way or the other on that where we were all about um legalism and 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 doing what is right with no grace or all grace and not concerned with the law with keep with being obedient then we'll also probably show individually our lack of christ so we have to realize that we, we cannot underestimate sin. And I can't say this enough. If you don't underestimate God, you won't underestimate sin. If you take the true right approach to wanting to know more about God, you will understand your sin better. Okay, so we know the passage if your right eye causes you to sin or stumble, tear it out, throw it away. Uh, for it's better to lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. 
If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. So, the first thing. How serious is Jesus about sin? Well, He tells us to take drastic measures to fight against it. Drastic measures. Tear out your eye. Like, we know it's hyperbole, but the analogy is there. And we see the importance, the, the drastic weight of how to avoid temptation. To remove something of value from our lives in order that we might not sin. Now, that whatever that might be, is different for everybody. Um, and it kind of goes back to what we talked about this morning. Idols. Uh, but not always. It's not always idols. But let's, let's just think of a few. The drastic measures to avoid temptation. What are some things that we might have to do to keep from sinning? To keep from being caught into temptation? Uh, the easy one, cut off certain relationships. Um, so we could be talking uh, romantically or just regular friendships that you value, that you find worth in. But if those relationships cause you to stumble... You must be careful. And you might have to cut it off. Now, we kind of get into this gray area of, well, we want to be in the world. We want to reflect what Jesus did. And he did, he did fellowship with sinners. He did dine with them. He did go into their homes. But he also was the Son of God. And he wasn't going to sin. He didn't have to... He didn't... He didn't have to, he didn't sin when he fellowshiped with sinners. We have to be cautious. You go to school, guys, you're gonna have to, you're gonna have to choose your friends wisely. You may have your buddy who is the best time, but if he is tempting you to sin, um, that's like, that's, that's what we're talking about here. You gotta pluck that eye out. So that it does not cause you to go into temptation to sin. Um, because what's more important? A good time with your friend for, I don't know, four years in high school? Or your eternal soul? So there's a value, understanding of what's important. And as we grow up, so I'm still kind of talking about the young, the young ones here. And you start dating, can I give you some advice on that? Don't start too early. You've got your whole life. Uh, seek the Lord in your youth. Um, there are always going to be girls. But you're never going to have this time to grow in the Lord. I wish someone would have told me that when I was your age. When I was a teenager. Don't get caught up in relationships when you have one relationship that is super important, and that is your relationship with Christ. Now, to the adults, cut off relationships 
that cause you to sin, sorry to say, you can't do that with your spouse. That's, that's not an option. If your spouse is causing you to sin, there's probably some, in, there's some, probably some self-reflection that needs to take place. Um, so maybe the thing that you have to pluck out is your pride. Um, is your need of, um, what do you call it? When you need to be, uh, pat it on the back. Trying to, what's the word I'm thinking of? Gratification. Your own self gratification within your relationship at home. Uh, so, if your spouse caused you to sin, there's no biblical direction that says, well, then you can leave your spouse. No. The idea is to become more like Christ within your relationship. And then there will be, there will at least be enough, a change in you. Um, so we, we cannot take that, we cannot take that to uh, our spouses. Uh, and then you also have to consider your expectations within your marriage. Teenagers, this kind of goes with you too. If you are telling me that your your parents are causing you to sin, I'm I I can't say whether they are or not. But what I do know is that the Bible says honor your father and mother. So I know some of us have grown up with parents who they are very difficult to honor. And we've all, maybe not everybody, but there have been people who have had parents that they have not led their kids in the admonition of the Lord, but they have provoked their children to anger. But that does not take away, that does not take away the command to honor your father and mother. Now it's a, it's a slippery slope, you would think, but what would it look like? My point is, is you can't cut off your relationship with your parents because they, you say that they make you sin. You still are under the obligation to honor your father and mother. Um, and again, take a look at yourself and maybe it's something internal and really not someone that's causing you to sin. Um, but parents, as grandparents, as I've said, uh, there is the command in Ephesians and Colossians that you're not to provoke your children. So are my kids causing me to sin? Well, you know, that's, that's parenting. We all kind of understand that. Um, so it's not get rid of them. It's, uh, I need the Lord. So maybe some other ways to uh, pluck out our eye or cut off our hand. You know, and this is a tough one. Um, you might have to change jobs. I know a lot of people who struggle at their job as a Christian because of the sin, the temptation that is there. Uh, what I'm not saying is quit working. I'm saying you might have to find another job. 
There's no biblical, there's no biblical direction that says if your boss is causing you to sin, quit, go pull unemployment and hang out for a while, but go look for another job. Um, another thing, drastic measures in avoiding temptation. Now, parents, grandparents, this is one that we have to all deal with. This is kind of a re, not necessarily, well, let me just say this. We can't remove all temptation from our children and our grandchildren. It's not possible. And it's not possible. To do that is to probably harm them, to try to remove all temptation, to try to create a bubble for them to live in is probably just as damaging. Um, so what do you do? You fill their lives. You fill their lives. You don't shelter them or bubble them, but you bring into their lives an environment that removes excess temptation. Meaning, um, let me get, let's think of some examples. Uh, being more... Spending more time in a family setting as opposed to you're in your room, you're in your room, you're in your room. Because what happens in your room and your room and your room when the doors are shut? Temptation. Temptation. Um, fill the void, fill the times with family worship, with family discipleship. Keep the word in front of your children. Um, we can't remove them from the temptation, but we can prepare them for the temptation, right? Uh, and the last thing to try to avoid temptation is don't try to keep up with the world. And this goes for all ages. Don't try to keep up with the world. Um, what that might mean uh, the latest technology, the latest TV series, the latest movie, the latest app that everyone's on, whatever the fad may be, because what happens? If you're following the trends of the world, you will get sucked in the t into the temptations of the world. Always. Now, that doesn't mean be a hermit, you know, don't get involved with technology or don't watch TV, whatever. I'm not, we're not removing ourselves from all things, but we're not trying to always follow all of these things. And here it is. You go to work, you go to school, people are talking about this show or this new thing or this whatever. And what do you want to do? You want to be a part of it. You don't want to feel left out. And then when that, and when that happens is when you get sucked in and when there's the potential of temptation. Um, and again, I'm kind of talking to myself here, but it start, parents, it starts with us. Uh, you know, well, I really, I can't miss this show at 8 p.m. Um, or, you know, it's been a long day. I got to just shut it off. Well, then we can turn it on as far as 
what we're doing with our families at home. Filling that time with um, Christ-centered activity, involvement, conversation, preparing them for temptation as they grow up. So that's just some some of the things that came to my mind today. And I and we all will experience different things and we'll all find areas in our life where we might have to modify, rip out or cut off because it brings temptation. It might even be the way you drive to work. It could be anything. Whatever it might be. Um but I do know that Jesus says if you seek, what does he say? Let me read it real quick. Whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life will, for my sake, will save it. So if we're not willing to lose things in this world for the sake of our eternal lives, we're going to lose our eternal lives. It's, it's inevitable. Okay, so the second thing that we can see in Jesus' two verses here, um, the consequence of sin. And basically, it's real simple, everybody. What's the consequences of if you aren't willing to uh, tear out your eye or cut off your hand to keep from sinning? He says it very plainly, you're thrown into hell. The consequences of not fighting against sin, the consequences of a life of sin, is for your whole body to go into hell. Now the consequences of sin aren't just eternal. They're also now. They affect the people around you. Kids, your consequence or this your sin has consequences at home. Yeah. And I don't mean I don't mean spankings, those kind of consequences. But I mean your sin might affect your sibling. Your sin might cause heartache with your parent. Your sin will always affect other people. Now you you think about um, I never can get his name right, but it's in Joshua seven. Israel's just defeated Jericho. Crazy defeat. God is obviously um, on their side. But then, in chapter 7, something happens. Israel goes up against the next city after Jericho, and they get their tails handed to them. Look at verse, or chapter 7, verse 1 in Joshua. Now remember, we're talking about the consequences of sin.
So after, or as they were going to Jericho, God pretty much said, hey, uh, you're going to be victorious, but you are not to keep anything from the city for yourself. Don't keep anything for yourself. But in chapter 7, verse 1, look what happens. But the people of Israel broke faith and regarded to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerai, in the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. And you know what happened? They went to Ai after beating Jericho, and they got smashed. They got beaten up at Ai. Now jump down to verse 10. So Joshua's in mourning. Doesn't understand what's going on. And the Lord said to Joshua, get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. Notice that. Israel has sinned. But we were told that it was Achan who took the devoted things, who disobeyed. Israel have sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things and have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. Look at verse 16. So Joshua rose early in the morning and brought Israel near, uh, near tribe by tribe, and the tribe of Judah was taken. And he brought near the clans of Judah. So Joshua's trying to figure out who did the wrong thing, who was the guilty party. And he's down to the clans of Judah, and the clans of the Zerarites was taken. And he brought near the clan of the Zerarites man by man, and Zebdi was taken. And he brought near his household man by man, and Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zeb- Zabdi, the son of Zerah, the tribe of Judah, was taken. And Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel, and give praise to him, and tell me now. What you have done, do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua, Truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar, two hundred shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing fifty shekels, then I coveted them and took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent, with the silver underneath. So I don't know. Now let's pause here. I don't know if this is true repentance. I don't know. We don't. The Bible doesn't say if Achan was forgiven by the Lord. But what we do know is that the consequences of his sin were not avoided. Look at 22. So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent. And behold, it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. 
And they took them out of the tent and brought them to Joshua to all the people of Israel. And they laid them down before the Lord. And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan and the sons of Zerah and the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold and his sons and daughters and his oxen and his donkey and sheep and his tent and all that they had. And they brought them up to the valley of Acre. And Joshua said, Why did you bring trouble on us? Notice the consequence of sin. The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that remain to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, the day, uh, to this day, the name of the place is called the Valley of Acre. Now, do we see the consequences of sin? That's a horrible story. But God's outlook on sin has not changed one bit. Not one bit. We try to understand. People say, well, God, why would God do this in the Old Testament? He doesn't act this way in the New Testament. Well, if you stand before the Lord in your sin, you will get worse than what has happened to Achan and his family. It will be worse. It will not be stones. It would not be a fire that goes out. But it is a fire that burns forever. That is the consequence of sin. Thrown into hell. But here's, the, here's, what, here's what Jesus calls us to. He's, we see the consequence of sin. But in this call of instruction to pluck out our eyes or cut off our hands... We see a call to arms to fight against sin. We see a call to arms to fight against sin. Now turn with me to Romans 8, and I just want to quickly show you the two two ways you can live towards sin. Two options, and that's it. Romans 8, verse 12. Now, I also, well, I'll wait till you get there. Because I want to make clear something before we read this. Paul is writing to the church at Rome. Okay? You're the church at Byron. Okay? The same way they were the church at Rome. But he is very clear about something. Just because you're in the church at Rome or you're in the church at Byron does not mean the Spirit of God dwells in you. So how do you know? Look what he says in verse 12 and 13. Well, let me just say, it's your outlook on sin. It is your outlook on sin. It is a, what does your life reflect when it comes to sin? Verse 12, so then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. If you live according to the flesh, this is, this is what that means. You are living in sin. To live according to the flesh is to live in sin. Verse 13, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. 
He is not talking about being put in the ground six foot under. He's talking to a church, and he says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. We go back to our passage in Matthew, and this is being thrown into hell. This is our one of our out one of our ways that we could approach sin. If we just live in it. And if you live in sin, it will put you to death. It will kill you twice over. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So, here's sin. Guess what it wants to do to you? Kill you. Twice over. That's what sin wants to do. So Paul says, you first put sin to death. You go and kill it before it kills you. And this is what, this is, this is the miracle of the new birth and the Spirit of God. If you go to fight and put to death sin apart from Christ and trusting in Him and being equipped by the Spirit of God, you will lose. And it will kill you twice over. But by the power of God, through the Son of God and the Spirit of God, you live according to the Spirit, you can fight sin and put it to death. Kill sin before it kills you. This is, this is a child of God. So let's read 13 again and then add 14 because it makes it even better. If you live according to the flesh, if you live in sin, you will die. But if by the Spirit that you have received through faith in Christ, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God, and what is the Spirit of God doing in them? Putting, death, putting to death sin, right? If you are led by the Spirit of God, your life it will reflect it in how you fight sin. Guess what? You are a son of God. You are a son of God. You are a daughter of God. This is the assurance that we have. If we, if we are unsure, if we have unbelief, if we can go back to our, our outlook on sin and say, okay, where am I? What is my position? Am I wallowing in my sin right now? Am I living unrepentantly? You need to turn and repent. And the sons and daughters of God will live a life of repentance because they understand what sin is trying to do. They understand what sin is trying to do. So we have a call to arms. But here's what I want us to understand. Many Christians, and I'll, we'll finish up here. Many Christians are being deceived today. Well, they've been deceived since the beginning. They'll, they, they're going to claim the name of Christ and they're going to stand before Him one day 
And he's going to turn them away. And you know what he's going to call them? You people of lawlessness. You people of lawlessness. Meaning, they didn't care a fiddlesticks about sin. They didn't care one degree about obedience to what they were called to. You workers of iniquity, you doers of lawlessness. So we can't come, we can't, we can't say, oh, I am, you have a conversation with somebody, oh, I am a Christian. Well, why do you say that? Well, I go to church. Oh, well, I would like to know if you are a Christian, what is your outlook on sin? What is your relationship with sin? Is it the same as it was before you were a Christian? Or has it changed? Because when we are called by Christ, we are called to fight against it. We are called to live and seek holiness, not just to be or say we are something. Um, we'll go ahead and we'll, we'll conclude there. Uh, I also just want to mention our call to arms to fight against sin. It's not a call to fight against the people of the world. It's kind of like what Brother Dan said this morning as we were you know, thinking about their blindness, the unbeliever's blindness. Like, we have to always remember they're going to act the way they're going to act. They don't, have any other, they don't have any other choice. Our call to arms isn't to go fight against them. We're actually called into the Great Commission to go preach the good news to them. To remind them or to tell them about this thing called sin. About its consequences. About a God who cannot stand for it. Who will judge it. And we just give them the gospel. We stand in truth in this fallen world, but we're not here to fight against the people of the world. But we want them to know of the love of Christ, the forgiveness of God through the cross. That's what we're called to do to this world. That's, that's what God wants us to do. He's, he says, go into all the nations... Baptizing them in the Father, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded. And you can't teach someone to observe all that Jesus has commanded and leave out sin. You can't you can't do that. Let's pray. Father, we uh we ask today that as you have um saved us through Jesus that we might be presented holy and blameless. Let us not sit back and be lazy thinking that we are going to come to the throne of God one day simply because we say we are something. But God, let us see the true work of Christ, of His righteous life, of the blood that He shed, 
the sacrifice that he uh, laid down his life that we might be counted righteous. Help us to always know this. That it might be deep in our bones that Christ has come to us in our sin and given us the motivation to walk in a newness of life. How can we who have died to sin continue in it? Place that within our hearts. Remind, that of, remind us of that daily. Even in the small things that we think are small sins, but to you have consequences beyond our imagine. Help us to see holiness for what it truly is. Help us to always remember the value of the rock of ages that was cut for us. God, for your glory forever and ever. Amen. Thank you all. I hope you have a good week.